This is a Federal News Network podcast. The National Defense Authorization Act, as the name implies, is nominally a defense bill. But the must-pass legislation has become a vehicle for all sorts of other initiatives in recent years, including federal cybersecurity efforts. This year's defense bill is set to once again boost the powers of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. For more on that, we're joined now by Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Hey there, Justin. Hey, Jared. So what is, uh, what's the background on the NDA becoming a vehicle for some of these cyber measures? Because you're right, that has absolutely been the case for, for several running years now. Right. Well, you know, the, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, is under the Department of Homeland Security. And you don't get a Department of Homeland Security reauthorization bill every year like you get um, the NDAA. Actually, I don't think there's ever been one passed all the way through and signed into law since DHS has, has, has come around into being. So this has become a bit of a trend where uh, lawmakers focus on cybersecurity efforts that are actually outside of the Depart- Defense Department as part of the NDAA. Last year's bill included new um, authorities for CISA to do threat hunting on .gov networks, for instance. It gave them some subpoena authority to be able to tell internet service providers when they have a have a vulnerability on their network. So there's been this trend building and, and it's uh, to add more cybersecurity authorities to agencies like CISA that are outside of DOD as part of the NDAA. Now, since last year, there's been this rush of cyber attacks like SolarWinds, Microsoft Exchange, ransomware attacks on critical infrastructure like uh, Colonial Pipeline in May. And lawmakers are again looking at how they can confront these issues, and they're looking again at CISA. Here's Senator Mark Warner, Democrat from Virginia, kind of summing up how lawmakers are looking at CISA this year. Truth is, CISA is kind of the new kid on the block in cybersecurity. And frankly, we've got to put more emphasis there because it is that first line of defense, generally speaking. People, when they think about going into cyber in the government, they think NSA or maybe FBI. We need to make sure from a recruitment and resourcing standpoint, we up the game at CISA. That was Senator Mark Warner from Virginia. And so how does this bill specifically impact CISA? So the House passed their defense bill last week, and it includes a provision that would require critical infrastructure owners and operators to report cyber attacks to CISA. And it's a pretty significant uh, requirement, a cyber requirement, uh, for industry there, where, where a lot of these partnerships with CISA are voluntary, here's something in, in, in uh, law or potentially coming into law that would require reporting to CISA. Especially after uh, the Colonial Pipeline attack, lawmakers want to make sure that companies that work in critical infrastructure are actually telling the government about these cyber attacks that could affect um a lot of different people and and affect the nation. And so they're pushing this bill that would require CISA knows about these incidents so that it can then provide some help to the victim if they need it, but then also share that information about the attack across government and other sectors to hopefully thwart that attack from affecting other organizations. And you're writing about some of the differences between the House and Senate versions of the NDAA when it comes to um, cyber incident reporting. You want to talk about some of those? Right. So that I just described the House passed bill. In the Senate, there are actually two bills that have been introduced. Uh, one is very similar to the House's version in that it would require cyber incident reports get to CISA within 72 hours of the incident being confirmed. 
Uh, Senator Mark Warner, who you just heard earlier, he's introduced a bill that would require incident reporting within 24 hours of confirming that uh, you've been hacked. So that's a much faster timeline. Here's um, CISA director Jen Easterly, though, saying why that might not be such a great idea. To me, coming out of finance, it doesn't make sense to say 24 hours from detection because you will flood us with noise. Right. We need signal, right? So we don't want to be overburdened with noise, and we don't want to overburden industry under duress trying to manage an That's incident. Right. And so what we want is to work with industry through a rulemaking period to make sure that we get this right. That's CISA Director Jen Easterly talking about cyber incident reporting timelines. Beyond timelines, uh, there's also this issue of penalties and, and how do you actually compel companies to, to do this and what happens if they don't. The House passed bill uh, includes subpoena, subpoena authority that would give CISA the ability to essentially subpoena the, these companies. Um, the other bill in the Senate that is very similar to the House's um, also includes that authority. Um, Senator Warner's bill includes uh, the authority to fine these companies. So as these different legislation, as, as these different bills work their way through the process, it'll be interesting to see how this enforcement mechanism plays out. A lot going on here, enough it seems like to almost justify a, a standalone reauthorization bill just for CISA. Anything else of note in the House bill when it comes to those CISA-related provisions of the NDAA? Yeah, it carried uh, a few other amendments related to CISA, including uh, one from Representative Alyssa Slotkin uh, from Michigan to establish a national cyber exercise program at CISA. And th th this would evaluate the National Cyber Incident Response Plan. So, so what is the government going to do in case a cyber attack takes out, you know, a, a critical infrastructure network entirely or an agency, a critical agency's network entirely? And so it would ha have the government uh, set up this exercise, have CISA set up this exercise program so that they actually run through those plans um, on, a, on a regular basis. So CISA increasingly wants to uh, work with the private sector to exercise those plans as well. Um, since not nearly 90% of U.S. critical infrastructure is actually owned by the private sector. Earlier this year, CISA established a joint cyber defense collaborative with uh, 15 different companies to actually start planning out those types of exercises and, and operations that they might need to do in, in case of a big cyber attack. And uh, here's Easterly describing her vision for how that partnership will shake out. We don't want the government on private sector networks, right? Of course not. But what we do want is to be able to partner with companies that have so much visibility, such as our cloud service providers, our ISPs. And so if you look at the plank holders, it really is ISPs and CSPs and cybersecurity vendors who have that massive vis global visibility, right? And can provide anonymized information about trends so that we can hopefully create that picture, see the dots, connect the dots, and then drive collective action at scale. That's CISA Director Jen Easterly describing the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative that her agency established earlier this year. So the House, in addition to the those cyber exercises that I talked about, the, the House Pass Defense Bill would also authorize CISA's Cyber Sentry Program. And this is a, a pilot program that the agency established last year to deploy sensors on the networks of critical infrastructure owners and operators and essentially monitor the traffic between the 
industrial control systems and the corporate networks on those systems, since that's often a vector for cyber attacks. Um, so this, this cyber sentry program is voluntary. There's no uh, requirement for critical infrastructure owners to actually participate in it, but the House passed bill would authorize it and essentially uh, codify it into law to give it a boost going forward. All right, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks very much. Thanks, Jared. And you can find a written rundown of the summary that Justin's been working on on these CISA-related provisions in the NDAA at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still ahead on Federal News Network, Congress is looking to remediate environmental contamination from PFAS using EPA's existing Superfund system. One legal argument for why that's a bad idea. That's next on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them 
I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federals Organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from
talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time.